Welcome to the Yarra Institute for Religion and Social Policy audio podcast. This edition will focus on the topic of God and the Natural Sciences, a constructive conversation with comments on the Atheist Convention. The following talk was delivered by the Reverend Canon Dr. Stephen Ames on Wednesday, June the 23rd, 2010, in the Study Centre of Yarra Theological Union. Dr. Stephen Ames is lecturer in the Philosophy School at the University of Melbourne and is a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral. In addition to his theological degree, he holds doctorates in both physics and the philosophy of science. Dr. Ames has published in the area of physics, history and philosophy of science and theology. He received a Templeton Foundation Award at Oxford University in 2001 at the University of Arizona in 2006 and again at Oxford in 2008 for a presentation on the nature of reason and design. If you would like to attend one of our events, please refer to our website www.yarrainstitute.org.au A transcript of this lecture is available on our home page. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcasts via iTunes or via an RSS feed located on our website's home page as we will be publishing podcasts regularly free of charge. Now, Dr. Stephen Ames. I feel like I'm uh, the carrier of a large opera. And so there are all sorts of interesting characters, parts, moves, drama, and so on. Um, and that's what I'm attempting to, to communicate tonight with, with, you might say, some severe scene selection to mix my metaphors completely. Um, what else do I want to say by way of introduction? That'll do. So, Thank you for coming tonight. I trust this talk will be of interest and possibly of some use to you. Why take up the theme? Well, the Atheist Convention is certainly one reason. At the convention, I found myself with 1,500 other people in something like a revivalist meeting with speakers larger than life on giant screens, uh, with uh, very well-groomed hosts, with much stamping of feet, cheering and ecstatic interjections. This is, this is the case. This was strident, militant, self-confident atheism in full voice and on the move to make everyone atheists. Now, one thing I've got to be careful of is not admitting here. So, a really interesting thing came to mind. I hope you commend me for putting it aside. <laughs> oh, all right, well, Catherine Dimity at the end said uh, her last word of her deed was Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. <laughs> Don't be afraid of dying, be afraid of never having lived. Peace be with you. <laughs> <laughs> so I've written in various places, um, it's the truth, the, the truth, the peace, and the no fear, of which Captain Devney is speaking, has got any connection to the Christian uh, understanding of these matters, since some of them are direct. But nevertheless, that was strident, militant, self-confident atheism in full voice 
Oh, they should have been produced every now and again, even in public like this. Uh, I may feel the need to say, my dears, you won't know it, but expletives are now falling out of my mouth. And just every now and again, one does. Catherine's gig was under the title of God is Bullshit. Two big claims from the convention were that religion is utterly irrational, with the standard rationality of the natural sciences, and secondly, religion is destroying our lives. I had hoped to be able to engage both of those tonight, but I've only been able to engage first. Uh, who knows, if it's 11 o'clock, we are ourselves in some ecstatic state still. The strongest criticism of Christian belief was based on the fact of dreadful human evil in the world and that Christians did not really follow Jesus' teaching and example. Well, this is all reason taking up the theme of God and the natural sciences, but the following story is another reason. Recently, I spoke at Theology in the Pub, where I heard this story from a teacher at a Catholic secondary school. His students were utterly surprised at the start of the year when they learned that their RE teacher was their teacher in maths and science. Now, their utter surprise indicated that cultural transformation, the cultural formation had already given them the deeply taken for granted uh, belief that thoughtful people like their teacher could not hold together religion and science. So they're already being deeply formed in that cultural, by our culture, in that standpoint. So my long-range target is our culture, which promotes a construal of reality in which being realistic means, among other things, right, there cannot be a conjunction between religion and science, between God and science. My missiological interest, which is also my human interest, is in helping interdict this cultural formation, which I think is mistaken. I want to be part of offering something better for our culture in the light of the good news of the reign of God that is coming to the world through Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the orientation of this talk can be summed up in two ways. Firstly, the understanding of God I'm assuming, and secondly, the understanding of the Church's mission. So I'm retaining the understanding of God as that than which none greater can be conceived which traditionally is articulated as God as being all-powerful, all-knowing, and wholly good, who creates the world for some purpose. However, I accept that idea of God from the standpoint of a Christian who hears the good news of the triune God as the narrative of a vulnerable God who proves invincible. This good news is what frames my life and thinking, and I will selectively draw on the God elaborate this framework in what follows here. On the second matter, I assume that the mission of the Church is to bear witness to the kind of world it is in which we live. This witness is not just in terms, in the terms by which the world bears witness to itself, but also and especially in terms of the kind of God revealed in Christ. The task is to draw out the resonances and the dissonances between these two testimonies to the kind of world in which we live, and then to be clear on how to act on this. And so tonight, I'm especially concerned with the testimony of the natural sciences to the kind of world in which we live. So I will, of course, address some 
in later manuscripts, Christian faith and natural science. But, as I've indicated, perhaps more than that is needed. For science and religion meet us every day, for example, in the media, and the media, along with other high-tech means of communication, are just the obvious examples of technologies that pervade our living and shape our view of the world. The key terms, God and the natural sciences, apparently point to two different construals of reality that stand, so it appears, opposed or apart. And for many people, reality as construed a la the natural sciences seems so powerful, so dominant, so comprehensive, so authoritative, compared to the reality construed by faith in God. This affects their understanding of the kind of world in which they live and how they live. And so I think this is what we are engaging with our thing. So here's my so introduction now. Um, I want to say, this is pretty obvious I think to most people here, I, I do believe it will be, but it's in the context of the of the, the new atheism, I want to say that theistic faith and Christian faith is fundamentally hospitable to the natural sciences. The emerging scientific tradition was uh, uh, initially, I think the first emergence, was uh, built on the metaphysical foundations provided by the Quran. Um, I, I think that um, the rise, the recognizable rise of modern science took place in Islam from the 9th century. For example, the nature of algebra, the idea of mathematical equations, astronomy, optics, engineering, medicine, uh, all within a flourishing Islamic civilization. And Islamic scholars attribute this, this emergence of science to the teaching of the Quran, directing believers and unbelievers to study the order of the created world and what has produced it. Terrific. Except that in the 13th century, the Genghis Khan embarked on his career of world conquest, which devastated the vast Islamic civilization. Baghdad went down in 1258. Islam recovered during the 15th to the 17th centuries within three prosperous and politically stable empires. However, and here is a key point, the earlier scientific work withered. There was no resurgence of that flourishing of natural science. And the reasons for that differing are much debated. I, I can't say here's a scholarly consensus on the matter. The rise of modern science, as we know, also took place in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries in a context that was saturated with religion and with religious conflict. The leading lights like Copernicus, Francis Bacon, Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, Boyle and Newton were devout and dedicated the new natural philosophy to God and believed that their work was nothing less than a study of the handiwork of God in creation. I take this to be obviously evidence for the claim that Christian belief is hospitable to and contributed to the promotion of the rise of the natural sciences. Uh, of course, I do not need to claim 
that Christian faith was the only Catholic work. The leading lights of the rise of modern science had religious and philosophical beliefs that proved hospitable to and helped promote this new view of the world. And so just a couple of examples. Important in their own right and for a little bit further on, something I want to draw attention to. But for Francis Bacon and others, an important theme in promoting the new experimental philosophy was the belief that the fall of, of Adam had corrupted human reason, which therefore needed to be disciplined by what could be known through our senses. It also provided hope for thereby restoring something of Adam's wonderful capacities prior to the fall. Kepler was able to hold together the physical, mathematical and metaphysical considerations, for example, focused on the sun in its manifest, in its manifold roles, as the mathematical centre in the description of motions, as the central physical agency for assuring continued motion of planets, and above all, as the metaphysical centre, the temple of the deity. For Galileo, God is the author of two books, which uh, shouldn't have looked up. The Bible and the Book of Nature. Since there is one author, the two books cannot ultimately be in contradiction unless one or both is being misinterpreted. Boyle and Newton retrieved from the early reformers Luther and Calvin the view that matter is fundamentally passive and that the powers we see in the world are not due to nature, vulgarly conceived, to quote Boyle, but to God's direct action in the world. So you can see just from this quick survey, uh, that the leading lights of the scientific revolution did not have to leave their Christian beliefs half over there while they did their natural philosophy. Indeed, the two were clearly woven in forming what beliefs in forming what was being done. Now, I won't repeat these, but of course, uh, we could not just work historically, but that's very important to to show what was the case. Um, and there are many other examples that can be given. But we can also work systematically in our thinking and, and showing how Christian faith is hospitable to the natural sciences. And um, uh, I guess one example of that, uh, one that I think is very important, is the Galileo's two books principle. He assumes, of course, that the natural sciences do indeed tell us something about God's creation. So that what we learn about God's, about the created world from the natural sciences and what we learn from the scriptures cannot ultimately be in contradiction because they have one author. But the question is, though, of course, that assumes that each is being correctly interpreted, and therein Pandora's box just, just opens. Another theme, I'll just mention this and I won't pursue this matter, uh, an old theme, there is one end to all God's works in creation, redemption, and consummation of God's purpose for the world. So, there is in the mind of God and embodied in all God's works 
an underlying intelligibility between creation, redemption, and consummation. If the natural sciences do tell us something about the created universe, then we should expect to find an underlying intelligibility between what we learn there and what we hear about redemption and the promise of consummation. So there, there should be some underlying intelligibility between, say, the increase of entropy and God's creation of the world. There should be, un I'm not identifying, we understand, but underlying intelligibility between the created world and resurrection. If there is one end to all those works. How these might be spelled out, opened up, and so on, of course, another big room, another night, mm, but, but, um, but it allows one to have a very strong sense of the word and, when we say God and the natural sciences. Now, this rough sketch of the history of the rise of natural sciences is much more accurate than the history commonly presented by atheists and skeptics as people throwing off the shackles of religion, mysticism, metaphysics and superstition, and consider... My first vicar when I was a curate said, Stephen, you better number your sermon pages because you'll lose them and you'll be in trouble. And that's what happened the next week. So, modern science began in the 16th, 17th century. Scientists abandoned and rejected all of those things, proceeded directly to the book of nature, developed a new method of inquiry. There it is. This led to unparalleled breakthroughs in the field after field of research. Who's that from? From Paul Kurtz. Science and religion, are they compatible? Uh, atheist and sceptic. Now, the main point I want to make is that, is that this rough sketch of the history is astray. It is not true of the leading lights in the rise of modern science. And it especially does not represent Galileo. Not, not to... I mentioned it because now I want to talk about it. So it's astray. But this is part of what's been propagated everywhere uh, as Christianity being a sort of deeply irrational and anti-science. So, the atheists claim that religion is utterly irrational where the standard rationality is taken to be the natural sciences. Their point is that faith is a delusion, a persistent belief held in the face of contradictory evidence. On this latter point, a key example is taken to be the church's suppression of Galileo. The claim is that in suppressing Galileo, the Catholic Church denied the truth that was there for all to see because it contradicted the church's belief right, about the world. Of course, that would indeed greatly support the atheist view if it were true, but it is a complete misrepresentation of the dispute between Galileo and the church. And I regard many atheists as indulging in worthless throwaway lines about the Galileo affair. For example, check this out, from Paul Philip Adams. Christians seeking to confirm the Bible's teaching were discomforted to find that they weren't true. The world wasn't flat. So the cosmological model of heaven, that is heaven up there and hell down, down there, should have been, became nonsense. Galileo got himself and theology into terrible trouble when he confirmed the Copernican theory that the earth wasn't at the centre of the universe. The Pope got angry. No Nobel Prize for Galileo. How about the Inquisition? How about your papers used to kindle your funeral pyre? <laughs> 
None of that is correct. None. No one believed in flat earth. Galileo was not burned to death. Pope Bernabin was angry, but not for the reason Adam says. The point is that Galileo's telescopic observations certainly contradicted the Aristotelian view of the world and the Ptolemaic astronomy, but it, it did not confirm the Copernican view, which is the sun-centered one, because telescopic observations made by Galileo could be entirely accommodated by the model of the universe proposed by the Dutch astronomer Tycho Brahe, which had the Earth at the center of the universe with all the planets rotating around the sun while the sun rotated around the Earth. No one rejected Galileo's telescopic observations. Pope Urban uh, accepted them. The Jesuit astronomers of the day confirmed them. What was debated was the interpretation of the observations. And Galileo needed more than astronomy. And this is what he provided by his famous tides argument. That the tides were due to the annual orbital motion of the Earth and its daily rotational motion. The problem was this wasn't confirmed by observations. Galileo didn't have the goods. Whatever else is correctly said about the Church's heavy-handed treatment of Galileo, and that needs to be thoroughly said, it is not correct to say that Galileo had shown the truth of the Copernican view for the sea, which the Church then suppressed. So, just to conclude this sad first segment, the rise of the natural sciences took place in context that was saturated with religion and the leading lights were devout and dedicated their new natural philosophy to God whose handiwork they studied. But today, the natural sciences seem to many to promote a materialistic and atheistic worldview. This is a stunning transition. <coughs> well, so the question is, how did this extraordinary transition come about by which we today, for many, many people, natural science is associated with materialistic and, and atheistic perspectives. Modern atheism, as there's all sorts of reasons people are atheists. I'm not talking about all of them. I'm not talking about tragedies that happen and people get hurt in their lives and decide, well, stuff God or whatever. I'm not talking about Nietzsche or uh, Marx or Freud or Feuerbach. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the atheism that got going in response to the rise of natural science. Uh, there are some very interesting books on the rise of modern atheism. I'm not talking about ancient atheism. So, but tonight I'll just briefly mention the work of the Jesuit scholar Michael Buckley in his two books, At the Roots of Modern Atheism and Denying and Disclosing God. And here's his point. It was, in fact, Dennis Diderot early 18th century, 1713 to 1784, and Baron Paul de Holbach, 1723 to 1789, who produced the first articulation of modern atheism in Diderot's 17-volume encyclopedia, as well as other works, and de Holbach's The System of Nature or the Laws of the Physical and Moral Universe in 1770. Now, how did they do this? Well, they took over parts of Descartes and Newton. 
put together the path they could accept and dropped everything else. In particular, and this is... Um, they changed the prevailing understanding of matter. They made motion part of the existence of matter. Descartes claimed he could account for everything given matter and the laws of motion. But God was needed to give the initial motion to matter and maintain the constancy of the overall motion. Newton had a similar view about the passivity of matter and that it is God that provides motion. Diderot and de Holbach had no need of a God to do this. For them, motion had been part of matter forever as the dynamic creative force of all of physical reality. Now, think about this. The official view was that matter was passive and that God was moving it. God was the agent, the supremely wise agent, moving all the planets, offering, providing motion. And uh, Newton is, uh, is eloquent about how, what it, how dark and cold and inert the universe would be if it was just matter. They got that, it would appear, from the Reformation. Another story, interesting in itself. But consider that proposition uh, against the fact that nature sure as eggs looks like it's got powers. It looks and feels like the sun melts the snow. It feels like the fire warms you. Now, um, they were on strong ground. But by doing that, they removed what had become for many people the chief warrant for the existence of God. Descartes' argument, uh, Newton. Um, now, Buckley makes a related point here that there is a contradiction between belief in and the worship of a personal God, but on the other hand, the use of arguments based on impersonal aspects of nature as the primary apologetic for belief in this God. So that uh, here is uh, Buckley's account of, the, of some of the roots of, of modern atheism. He thinks it's a dialectical process that the way belief in God was being construed was what brought on the possibility of unbelief. Now, but in addition to that, so there's that interesting thing going on there in the 18th century uh, to bring atheism out of what looked like the way the new uh, philosophy was expressive of and proof of and so on and so on and so on of God. In addition to all of that, I want to emphasize that the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries saw the great expansion of naturalistic explanations as more and more of the operation of the world, previously attributed to God, came to be understood in terms of lawful, blind, natural processes, which one didn't, as Laplace famously said, for which one didn't need to have God. Thank you. Now this, this extraordinarily powerful naturalistic program, 
is a rational basis for the belief that eventually everything will be explicable in completely natural terms without reference to God. It is a grand generalization based on an impressive track record of the last 500 years of scientific work. What starts out as a methodological principle, methodological naturalism, that is, we, don't, we only invoke blind natural causes, like processes, to explain what is observed, that's a methodological stance in natural, is so successful that it leads many, many people to metaphysical naturalism. And this is the proposition that all there is is what the natural sciences say there is, or complex configurations of the same. Since the natural sciences do not and do not need to invoke God, such scientific naturalism is atheistic. And hence the rise of a completely naturalistic worldview, which today pervades academic life and public life. Now, some of you may think this is obviously wrong. You may believe that music and literature and mathematics and that all the higher human powers, including compassion, leading to genuine altruism, can't possibly be the expression of mere natural processes ultimately grounded in, in physics, chemistry and biology. Well, I happen to think that myself. But it's worth pointing out that not everyone does. The motto on the National Neuroscience Faculty on the second floor of the Alan, Alan Gilbert Building in Grattan Street tells us that music and mathematics and all the other higher human capacities are all driven by brain processes. And I heard on encounter the other week a woman saying with such a plot, such how she saw herself as a bag of neurons. And, and that was fine. Now, scientific naturalism is based on a generalisation from the success of the natural sciences in offering naturalistic explanations. <coughs> and like all generalisations, there is the possibility of counter-examples. All observed swans are white, generalises, all observed swans are white, generalises to all swans are white, until a black swan shows up. So, what would be the equivalent of a black swan for the generalisation at the base of scientific naturalism, right? which I should stress is a philosophical position, not natural science. For the natural sciences do not speak about all there is. You won't find that in any textbooks or journal literature in any of the science schools at a university. So what would be the equivalent to a black swan here? It must be something that cannot be explained by the natural sciences. Because the generalisation is everything will be an expression of this naturalistic viewpoint. And this is not so simple because non-reductive physicalism is the most sophisticated version of scientific naturalism. And on this view, what there is is what physics says there is or complex configurations of the same. There's no extra ontological ingredient, like vital forces, or souls, or spirits, they're not part of the deal. The proponents do not embrace explanatory reduction. 
Why? Because new levels of complexity lead to new emergent kinds of causal powers, such as we see in plants and animals and human beings, which cannot be explained in terms of physics. So the reduction is that all there is is what physics says there is, or complex configurations are the same, and then there are emergent properties. So, are there any contenders for a black swan that could, could contradict this generalization? Um, it won't be adequate to treat a mere gap in our current scientific knowledge as grounds for invoking some non-natural-like God to provide the explanation and so contradicting naturalism. That won't do. The track record is that gaps in scientific knowledge eventually get filled by science and that the God so-called invoked to fill the gap disappears. An atheist rightly criticizes religious people who invoke those kind of gaps. And I see this as a key problem for a current contender for being a black swan, namely intelligent design. Through their explanatory filter, by which they get rid of the uh, false contenders for this, they identify complex entities that they say cannot be explained by the natural laws of science, nor can they be explained by chance. The difficulty is that when you go and read the fine print, all they mean by claiming science cannot explain this complex entity is that science has not yet explained this complex entity. So they are pointing to a current gap in scientific knowledge. This is another form, a sophisticated form, of the gaps argument that won't do. So here I present what I regard as one example. I think there are several. Um, but here's what I regard as a black swan that contradicts the grand generalization that all there is is what the natural scientists say there is. Um, my example is drawn where from? from scientific inquiry, which of course is part of the natural sciences. Of course, how could it be otherwise? Except that I find it quite often the case when I'm talking with people who want to take the contrary view that all that they mean by the natural sciences is not the actual activity of inquiry except when they're beating religious people for faith, not reason, but they're talking about the picture of the world that science gives. But I'm talking about inquiry. It's part of the, the, the natural sciences. Um, it seems to me that scientific inquiry has what I would call a normative dimension that is evaluative and regulative. And let me explain it is evaluative when it says this or that is a good argument or a good experiment or good results. It's evaluative. It's also evaluative when you say that's all rubbish, get rid of it. It's regulative um, when it says that you ought to take account of these, these results, these arguments, these conclusions in conducting your inquiries and forming your beliefs about whatever it is you're inquiring into. The ought is powerful in the sense of being deeply implicated in the primary reason for acting in the context of inquiry, whether it's developing the theory this way or taking up these experimental results or setting up that experiment. Right? It's, it's deeply implicated in the primary reason for acting in the context of inquiry. And as a philosopher, Donald Davidson said very long ago, the primary reason for an action is its cause. 
So this sense of the ought of inquiry is powerful and plain and real. You can't be anti-realist about this ought. So scientific naturalists must either deny this normativity or attempt to explain it. Now, given the uh, epistemic practices, the practice about inquiry, of the natural sciences, the denial would lack credibility. Naturalist accounts of normativity uh, invoke the help of hypothetical imperatives. Now, a hypothetical imperative says, if you want to achieve W, and X, Y, Z are means to do so, but X is the most effective and efficient, then you ought to do X. That's what a hypothetical is. It's a structure. Right. So these, that appears in the naturalist account of, of the regulative aspect of inquiry. Now, it may be a fact that you want to achieve Y, and it may be a fact that X is the best means out of X, Y, and Z. But logically, those two premises do not allow an inference to any conclusion as to what ought to be done. Those kind of is statements do not allow you to get an ought. Um, a hypothetical imperative is more properly stated like this. If you want to achieve W, and while X, Y, and Z are means, X is the most effective and efficient, then rationally, you ought to do X. The point is that rationality is an inherently normative notion. Now, naturalism seeks to locate the origins of this normativity, which shows up in inquiry so powerfully, in natural processes described by the natural sciences. But what, what do they tell us? They tell us what is going on in complex natural entities and complex natural processes, including for them, like human inquirers. But logically, this does not allow us to infer what ought to be going on, even in conducting inquiry. So I take this as indicating the need for a richer worldview. One that's provided, a richer worldview than that provided by scientific naturalism. Now, there are other contenders for black swans and all that sort of thing. I won't go further with them. I do have a strategy that focuses on human inquiry because, like I'm sure you do, human inquiry in all its forms, whether it's about what to do to get the shopping done right, or the Large Hadron Collider, human inquiry is an extraordinary phenomenon. And I take it as providing a whole raft of evidences and clues to the reality of God. I've no principal objection to naturalists generalising on the amazing success of the natural sciences over the last 500 years. This is a rational move. The only question, as with all generalisation, is whether it can hold up. And I've just been offering a reason why I think it does not. So, the way this, this whole philosophy, this whole worldview of naturalism, 
is, of course, to take a for granted public way of talking and in academic life, everywhere, but academic life where I am. Um, it likes to present itself as the, the worldview that is naturally what goes with, the philosophy that naturally goes with the natural sciences. And often the proponents mix up both the natural sciences and the philosophy as if they're all the same. But they're not. That's one really important thing, to prize them apart. The second thing is this. I'd like to be able to show two things. That it's quite possible to construct a different philosophical position from the natural sciences. I'd like to show, and I will, I'll do it in a sentence or two in a second, a different generalisation is possible. And then how that might be tested. Because every generalisation has to face its own black swans. The second thing I'd like to do is to, is to be able to say, to be able to argue um, that um, the operations of the laws of physics, the laws of nature, are actually encoded with something quite surprising. And, um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll do it in the, Jamie, I'll do this in the form of a couple of brushstrokes. Here I go. So, but you see, see how good it would be if, if in addition to this naturalism, one puts, I, I, this is what I feel for, uh, for young people who are deeply immersed in a scientific and technological culture. I want to step in there as deeply as I can and show how it may be opened up. Not so that it drops out or anything, but that it's richer than you might think. That's my target. So, here's what I think is important. Is that of all the things that you might want to say about inquiry, any kind, but especially including the natural sciences, here's something that I want to say that it carries presuppositions. And the people that I read on this, people like uh, Karl Popper, Imre Lakatos, um, Gerald Halton, uh, I can't quite quickly remember them off the head, but they're the ones I read. Um, and here's the presupposition that I think inquiry carries with it. It carries the presumption that the field that you're inquiring into is intelligible and susceptible to rational explanation without prejudice to the forms of intelligibility and the forms of rationality that might then be needed. That's, a, that's, what, you, that's what humans bring to inquiry. It doesn't come from finding successful results. They help confirm the presumption. It's what's brought to it. It's what gets inquiry going, along with the asking of questions that itself comes out of human wondering, whether on a large scale or a... Why did she say that? What's that about? Questions which Bernard Lonigan tells us come out of a desire to know, right? to know what is so. And 
And as you can tell from, not just from the last 500 years of scientific inquiry, but, but this is incessant, the incessant eruption of questions and wondering right, fuels inquiry as if there were no limits. Long before La Trobe University was selling infinite possibilities to students, right, human inquiry was if it had no limits. Now, what I would do is to take that presupposition and postulate that it is indeed without limit, that everything is intelligible, and then with some help from a variety of people, I will come to see that that, I, that presupposition leads me to an idea of God as creator of all that is. And then, all sorts of things will follow, and they could be put to the test. For example, one of the consequences is that if you take that postulate, that generalisation, based on the phenomenon of human inquiry, right, then there ought to be an answer to the question, why is the universe structured and structured the way it is? That's part of... If you can't answer that, or if you could show that there was no answer to that, if you could show that the universe was just a brute fact, as... Uh, Bertrand Russell once famously said to Father Cobbleston, then, then, sorry, that's a black swan, and... So, in my research, uh, I've pursued this question, and, and so, and the, what I would say is that the, the, uh, I would want to argue that the, there is an answer to the question, why are the laws of physics the way they are? And the answer that I argue for is as follows. The universe is structured according to the laws of physics in order that the universe can be known by, through empirical inquiry by embodied rational agents, whether humans or aliens. Or so why are the laws of physics the way they are? In order that the universe is knowable through by empirical inquiry by embodied rational agents. So, um, I've made, I've introduced uh, an explanation for why is it that there was this extraordinary transition from when the rise of modern science in a deeply religious context by the devotees of God and the science, yet today here we are uh, where science seems to be um, uh, materialistic and atheistic, how did that transition come about? I've suggested that some explanations, including the vast success of being able to explain natural processes by just ordinary blind causal processes. And that that's the basis for the generalisation, that that's all there is. And then I've offered a critique of that right, by, what, by looking at inquiry and showing that it's regulative and normative normative is evaluative and regulative and I've, I've wanted to open up the presuppositions of inquiry and oddly enough I'm wanting to say something about human inquiry is actually encoded in the structure of the laws of physics. Okay, so uh, this section is called God, Evolution and Evil. See how we go. The claimed irrationality of religion was also supported at the convention by old arguments against the idea of God. Now, these are basic, but I mention it. 
If God created everything, who created God? That was Philip Adams' question at the convention. And in a more complex form, also Dawkins' one. Who designed the designer? In the God delusion, Dawkins thinks he has, now get this, an unrebuttable reputation of God where God is understood as the supernatural creator of the universe. The supernatural intelligence who designed and created the universe and everything in it, including us. Okay. Um, but the simple point is, now I'm wanting to make this argument against Dawkins. Right? But the simple point is that if God is the creator of the universe, indeed of all things, then there's nothing prior to God that can create or design God. This is trivial, but you could, we're down to trivialities here. Adams and Dawkins' questions do not point to an objection to this idea of God, but rather to their failure to understand the very idea they're objecting to. There are other objections they might have raised. For example, that the world just is. It's a brute fact that doesn't provide any grounds for belief in a creator. They might have tried that. So that's... As an alternative to his idea of God, <laughs> Dawkins proposes this thing. Any creative intelligence of sufficient capacity to design anything comes into existence only at the end product of an extended process of gradual evolution up the slope of Mount Improbable, step by step, right, until complex things are produced. Right. Notice the naturalism. All creative intelligence. Any creative intelligence, including God. So, um, now, then Dawkins asks, who designed the designer? So, if you take that, there's the idea of God. Who designed the designer, he asks. And on Dawkins' view, the designer must be even more complex and more improbable, and so could itself only have arisen from a gradual process of evolution. But, on his idea of God as the creator and designer of the universe, God cannot have arisen from an evolutionary process within the universe. This is, this is, this is not trivial. I think it's trivial. But you've got to say it. God cannot have arisen from an evolutionary process within the universe. I'm assuming this idea of God, but it's a contradictory idea if you try and run it. Despite being an alternative to Dawkins' view, the idea of God is assumed to conform. So, these are alternatives, but this one's still assumed to conform to this one, even though it cannot logically do so. Now, Dawkins allows if there was even, no, this is the next one, if there was even one example of irreducible complexity, then Darwin's theory would be wrecked. And he quotes Darwin on this point. Darwin accountants, for the sake of the argument, uh, sorry, this was also Darwin's view, but no such example has yet been found. But now here's the rub. Dawkins countenances for the sake of the argument that one such example might is found. And he says, well, that would wreck Darwin's theory. But then he says, no worries. Right? No, he doesn't. I say no worries. He's got something much more elegant. But then how is the quote? 
it has already wrecked the intelligent design theory because God would have to be very, very complex and irreducibly so. Now this is only a problem for the idea of God if the creator and designer of God still has to be explained in terms of a Darwinian account of their complexity. Even though for the sake of the argument, Dawkins acknowledges this account would be wrecked by the assumed example of something irreducibly complex. Another whole argument is um, that the universe operates, so it appears, from blind causal processes. And from there, from blind, there's the entrance to purposeless, and from purposeless to godless. And what you'd like to be able to do is to break that inference that blind does not mean purposeless. Why is that? Well, look around, my brothers and sisters. We're, we're surrounded by blind causal processes operating in this room. But they've all been deployed for a purpose. And people say, well, that's great, Stephen, but the, the blind causal processes of the universe, they're not, uh, we don't have any evidence of them. Except now, with my argument that I was referring to before about the laws of nature, I do have an argument for why how the blind processes described by natural laws of physics are actually encoded for better purpose. However, what you'd like to be able to do also is from the side of God argue this way. Why would God use blind natural purposes? And more particularly, why would God create a world for some purpose which operates like evolution? What, what possible... So, and this question is also a problem relevant to what problem of natural evil. And the problem of natural evil comes to light as follows. Atheists say that evolution by natural selection shows that life has come into existence by a process involving a vast amount of pain, suffering and death. It cannot be the work of a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing and wholly good. No halfway decent God would create such a world. Now, the problem of human evil was vividly presented at the convention by Robin Williams of the ABC Science Show, who quoted a dreadful scene of slaughter and torture from the book The Rape of Africa. And then said, God's only excuse for not intervening is that God doesn't exist. And he said that with so, what, such feeling. The problem of evil, whether natural, evil or human evil, are both part of the contradictory evidence to which atheists refer when they say faith is a delusion because there is a belief held in the face of contradictory evidence. So how do we respond? Well, um, a Christian response would be to point to the crucifixion of Jesus and of the countless others who were horribly, horrifically executed by Rome in defending the empire. There were no interventions not even one to stop the killing of a man who, according to the story, was the incarnate Son of God. The crucified God is very different from what is expected on the standard view of God as all-powerful, all-knowing and wholly good, who should not end up on a cross and should not enter into human suffering as another victim of human violence. Some people cope with the no intervention by dropping one of the superlatives, usually the all-powerful. Others follow Williams, right? and deny the existence of God. I think there's a third possibility. Right? 
Now, on my website, uh, Science Religion Society at Trinity College, you can find several papers, and the one here, which I'm, I refer you to, is Why Would God Use Evolution? I'll just say a couple of things here. How, do you, how would you develop this third possibility? This is the way I would do it. Um, I, this is where I would start with Aquinas from the 13th century, and he discusses whether all things are governed by God immediately and whether God is active in every age and cause. Is, is, it, is it the fire that warms you or is it God in the fire that warms you? Aquinas argues that God creates things with their own real powers, whether matter and energy or eventually human beings with power and freedom for good and ill. Aquinas' point is that we speak of God in superlative terms as the very essence of goodness and so our speaking of God should be guided by this standard. We should prefer to say that God creates things with their own real powers rather than not having any powers. And these powers should not only be good in themselves, but the cause of good in others. <clears throat> this is because it is a greater exercise of power compared to creating things that are merely good in themselves, but without power to be the cause of good in others. And on this line of thought, what is of value to God is that creatures are co-creators, and on the same basis, I would argue, we should prefer to say that God maximises the realisation of this value in the created universe. I should prefer, therefore, to think of God as creating a universe of basic things, all with their own powers, by which, which by their own operation produce many other things, including living things. So on this view, God creates a life-producing universe rather than, say, an inert universe or a chaotic universe or a merely mechanically interacting universe. <clears throat> Why? Because this is a better type of creation. When I said that, a student put his hand up and said he wanted to know on what basis I said that this sort of creation was better than those sorts. Was I just projecting? I said that's the story of my life. I always deal with it. However, it is a better type of creation because compared to other possible types of creation just mentioned, chaotic, mechanical, huh, creatures so created by God are more like the living God who brings into being what does not exist, who is therefore not only good in God's self but the cause of good in others. In my public discussion with my atheist colleague, um, his line was indeed that the way the world is with evolution and so on and so on is that no halfway decent God, but it, it's a natural evil. And the point then is this, that my colleague, Neil, says that the way the world is, our evolution, etc., there weren't anything else, is different from what you would expect a holy good God to create. That's why he's entitled to call it a natural evil because he's not whipping out of his back pocket his own version of good. Right? He's targeting the good God. And his claim is that no halfway decent God would make a world like this. To which I say, show me the argument from the understanding of God is holy, good, all-powerful, all-knowing, right, to what kind of world we should expect that God to create. Show me the argument. There is no argument. There is no argument. 
So he's not entitled to call it a natural evil. So in my story that I'm telling, I've got now, starting from Aquinas' idea of God, which I happen to share, at least to the extent that I've mentioned any idea of God, and I've, I've talked about Aquinas' arguments for how we should think about God creating, and it leads to God creating a life-producing universe. That's theology, if not yet science. How do you get to the science? You can't get to the science from theology. Why? Because, because to find out the way the world actually is, that God has created, we would have to know exactly how God thought in order to derive it, which we, you know, we, are, we are fallen, or at least we are limited. Right? So you actually have to go and look. The person who really went and looked and spent five years doing so was Charles Darwin. Ex naturalist, explorer, extraordinaire. And after a lot of hard work, found the intelligibility in the natural processes which he described under the theory of evolution and particularly natural selection. Is this the only intelligibility to be found in the world? I would say no. So I salute also someone like Jared Manley Hopkins, poet extraordinaire. Now, so I'll last finish with this. Sorry, Jamie, I'm, I know the time. So forget all that, because I want to come to the last thing. Um, the last thing that Dawkins said. Here we go. The last speaker was Richard Dawkins on the theme, the evolution of gratitude, and the gratitude for evolution. Evolution gives us reason to be thankful. And when he said that, in, with a rhetorical flourish, the whole uh, auditorium erupted. What? Which he played up wonderfully. Um, and Dawkins gave it real rhetorical emphasis. Yes. So this gratitude is an example. But now, so what is this gratitude? According to Dawkins, it's a misfire. It's a behaviour that's hardwired by evolution and then it fires off uh, in another context where its evolutionary rationale no longer holds. And one of his other examples of this is couples who've read their Darwin, right, still go on having sex when they're not having children. They've somehow forgotten that uh, the evolutionary rationale for sex is procreation. Right? That's, that's another example of what he calls misfiring. I think they are actually very clear misfiring. In fact, misfiring would be counterproductive. So, in his God delusion, this is how he explains what he calls the Good Samaritan in each of us. The Good Samaritan behaviour in each of us has its evolutionary roots in a misfire. That's his claim. Okay. Um, now, so, the, in the case of feeling gratitude for being alive, he suggests it is a misfiring of the early childhood learning to calculate what is fair and feeling grateful. So, we find ourselves <coughs> thankful for all sorts of green lights that give us an easy drive. And this is the basis for Dawkins' strong exhortation for us to be thankful and to be inspired by the fact of our existence produced by evolution. Right? Now, you now, we're, now we're nearly back in the revivalist moment, giving thanks, being gratitude for. Now, as I reflected on his exhortation, I, of course, was reminded of a different theme of thanksgiving that is part of Christian life, thanksgiving for all life as a gift from God, central to the meal and the conversation that is at the heart of 
worship for many Christians, this gift and thanksgiving is what I wake up into and why I get out of bed in the morning. But Dawkins, this, all this, this gratitude is just another example of misfiring with my gratitude projected onto a non-existent God. But I would need something better than a misfire to follow Dawkins' exhortation because recall his own words. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And I think this places the suggested gratitude for life due to misfire in a larger context. It helps us see through such gratitude, seeing it as a misfire, Indifference, especially blind, pitiless indifference, does not warrant gratitude. On the other hand, like many people, I am grateful for being alive. And yes, I am thankful and amazed at the evolution of life and the physical conditions of the evolving universe, and this has been brought home to me by a scientific story about the universe. But I was thankful for life long before I knew the scientific story, even though my gratitude is now deeply informed by that story. From early in my life, before becoming a Christian, I had a strong sense of the unconditional value of life. And I still take this as one of the other clues to reality, even when, or especially when, this value is dreadfully violated. This sense of value does not accord with a worldview, a metaphysics, in which everything conditions everything else. The unconditional value of life must have its roots in something that transcends all the conditions of life. My gratitude for life comes from recognising that life is a precious gift. The Christian message illuminates this gift and its giver and promises it will be honoured. At bottom, I think, there is a gracious giving of existence and the giver is the living God who will have the last word for the whole created universe and it will be yes.